Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, I'm Kenneth Kukier, senior editor, and you're listening to The Economist Asks. And this week we ask, how will our cybernetic past shape our digital future? For most of the 20th century, scientists have been concerned with building bigger, better, smarter machines. Indeed, all types of hardware, from toasters to weapons of mass destruction, served to rapidly transform modern life as we hurled into the tech innovations that are defining the 21st century. Now our gadgets are becoming even more reactive and lifelike, and the humans are becoming more mechanized. The reasons why the technologies are improving, things like predictive text and auto-translate, is because of artificial intelligence. And we, the mere humans, are becoming a little bit more zombie-like because we're getting used to the technology taking over things that the human mind used to do. In fact, Hollywood has been quick to exploit these transformations. Movies like Terminator and the arty Spike Jones romance, Her, offered visions of what machine intelligence and AI might mean for our future. Hasta la vista, baby. Is that weird? Do you think I'm weird? <laughs> kind of. Why? Well, you seem like a person, but you're just a voice in a computer. I can understand how the limited perspective of an unartificial mind would perceive it that way. You'll get used to it. So is it time to panic? Are the robots on the verge of a revolt? Are we about to be smothered by the smartphones that we adore? My next guest is Thomas Ridd, a historian of technology and a professor at King's College London. His latest book is Rise of the Machines, A Cybernetic History, and it looks back on the origins of the technology and philosophy of the debate between computers and humankind. And it poses the question whether we should embrace the machine or we should fear it, or indeed whether our fears are rather customary when a new technology crops up. Hello, Thomas. Hi, hello. Also joining us is Edward Lucas, who is a senior editor here at The Economist and the author of Cyberphobia. Hello, Edward. Hello, Ken. Thomas, before we open up the discussion, I want to give our audience a basic grounding on what cybernetics is. The term cyber comes from a Greek term, which means basically helmsman. The term cybernetics itself was coined in the 1950s to mean control and communications in the animal and the machine. Now, we all think about AI today, and it harkens back to cybernetics. And today, we use the term cyber to basically mean the internet. But how would you define what cybernetics is? Cybernetics was an idea that came up in response to the air defense problem in the Second World War. And it basically is a theory of machines. People at the time discovered um, what they called feedback. Now it's part of common uh, English. Feedback was that machines were able to measure change in the environment and then adapt some sort of variable behavior in response to that change. So imagine thermostat at your home. And how were they initially inspired by this idea of control and communications in man and the machine? How was it first applied? You had mentioned it was done for air traffic and also for a missile defense. Yeah. Tell us more. The cybernetic challenge in during the Second World War, before the term even was coined, was to basically shoot down German bombers flying towards Britain. And 
they had two problems, the, the air defense, uh, the British air defenses. The German bombers were flying higher than ever before and faster than ever before. So they needed to see them and then calculate the trajectory for the, for the artillery shell in order to hit the planes. And in the context of these engineering problems, and these were very, very basic, extremely difficult engineering problems to solve, the idea of looking at the plane as a human machine entity, the pilot and the plane, that base their behavior on communication and control, came up in that context, cybernetics. And since then, it's actually moved into other parts of society. We don't really even talk about cybernetics anymore. Why is that? So cybernetics as a theory in the late 40s and during the 50s and early 60s, was too ambitious. It wanted to do too much. It wanted to explain not just air defense and pilot-plane interaction, but biology, physics, uh, chemistry. Then suddenly the hum humanities, political science, sociology discovered cybernetics, even self-help, and indeed religious movements. So the idea essentially died of obesity, if you want. Everybody wanted to use it. It became too much. It couldn't survive anymore. Do you have a reason why we anthropomorphize technology to such a degree that we would look upon this technology and put it in the framework of good and evil like we would a human being? This is a very, I think, very deep question, and, but also an important one. Uh, the temptation to think the machine from the human is, is indeed a very old one. It goes, of course, back of course. many, many centuries, probably even millennia. Even the, the, the ancients, the Greek, for instance, Absolutely. had that temptation. Ultimately, I think the idea of the singularity, for instance, that we could develop a machine that is not just as intelligent as humans, the crown of creation, but even more intelligent. Ultimately, that, that idea of the singularity, of creating these ultra-intelligent machines, is playing not just God, but it's playing something that is even better than God because it, we can now create something that is better than, than us. I think it's important to understand that ultimately spiritual and deeply human temptation because Wiener himself, who coined the term cybernetics, and many after him succumbed to that temptation. I think I see it in the AI predictions again and again today. Edward Lucas. Well, there's a, and there's obviously a danger of extrapolation, which um, I think people in with a sort of engineering and science background, it's the natural way of thinking. You can do this once, and what will happen if you do it a million times and it costs this? What will happen if it becomes much, much cheaper and if everybody does it? And, and, and to some extent, that does work. And we've all sorts of questions in, in AI and computing that 30 years ago, people would say, well, that's fine, but you'll never get the processing power and you'll never get the storage. And now guess what? We have the processing power and the storage, and they're really, really cheap. So that's a sort of knocked away one problem from that. But I'm, I was wondering, what do you think, if you were writing the book in 20 years' time, and you were writing a chapter about the delusions and myths we have now, what would, what would you be focusing on? What do you think would, is the kind of current misguided intellectual fashion? I think the artificial intelligence discussion today has all the hallmarks, to me, of wild exaggerations. You, Edward, I think are interested in cybersecurity as well. And it's interesting, if you raise the question of automation and artificial intelligence in a, in a cybersecurity context among people with a technical background, they have a very strong suspicion by, by intuition. They're very skeptical initially. Why? Because in the day-to-day -day work of defending networks, part of that defense is already automated. The day-to-day -day experience is that the adversary is trying to outsmart automation all the time, intrusion detection systems, for instance. So 
the idea that automation at some point, autonomous artificial intelligence could outsmart us, sort of doesn't really chime with people who either uh, try to defend networks or indeed with people on the battlefield who also work with drones and other uh, smart devices, they see the limitations and they see that adversaries are constantly outsmarting technology. For most of the book, you're writing about machines and people who are in a very rarefied category. You've got sort of the cleverest people in, in military research during World War II developing these fire control computers. You have the cutting-edge computer scientists um, working out how all these feedback loops and things could work, work. and it's, it's been a very specialised thing for most of the period you're writing about. But now suddenly we have a thing where this, is, this really is baked in to the way that ordinary people live, and that, that's quite new, and you could live, even 10 or 15 years ago, you could live without a smartphone, you didn't need to have an internet, I mean there are plenty of older people in this country who are just now beginning in their 70s and 80s realise actually I really need to be able to do stuff online. So this is sort of penetrated into a whole range of things. Cars are no longer mechanical objects, they're basically computers with engines attached. And, and I think that, that has expanded the both the potential for things to go wrong, but also I think it's right to worry about the dystopian side as well, because what in cybersecurity is called the attack surface has just in, in, increased exponentially. And with that, the rewards for attackers. I mean, you write about Moonlight Maze. That was a tremendous Russian um, cyber attack in the 1990s. It was basically there to steal American government secrets. And that, that attack surface was quite small. Now the attack surface is almost the whole of modern life. Absolutely. And I completely agree with the assessment. I mean, some of the fears and hopes uh, have a broader base today and a broader base than they ever had in the past. But at the same time, I think it's important to understand that the, the three revolutions that really happened during the 1980s, roughly speaking, late 70s to the 90s, the personal computer, the internet, and encryption were rolled out to the masses. But with that rollout, we also rolled out the idea that this could happen again and again. And arguably, all these three things, personal computer, the internet, and encryption, public key encryption rolled out en masse, they can only happen once. And you can't repeat that feat every couple of years or decades. It's a unique change in the way humans communicate, I think. True, although one could argue that we're now in the midst of a new revolution that's on par with those three, and that is artificial intelligence or big data. The machine learning revolution is now machine learning is part of the fabric of everyday life in all different domains from how uh, Google works so effectively well to Siri, your personal assistant, to self-driving cars. And in fact, a cynic might even say that AI is just simply a rebranding of cybernetics. The reason why they, we even created the term AI in the 1950s was because a group of MIT wags didn't want to invite Norbert Wiener to their conference in Dartmouth because he was such a jerk to people. And so they needed, if they were to call it cybernetics, they would have to invite him because he's the father of it. But if they created a different term, they would have to, they could actually leave the invitation off. And so they created AI. And I think it's important to understand the terminology here is, is quite uh, short-lived sometimes. So in the 60s, for instance, you had this debate about cybernation, a word that most people today will not have even heard of. And it was, you know, it was a term that was commonly used front page New York Times, etc. Tend to when technology moves on, we have this habit of retiring terminology relatively quickly. So, for instance, artificial what was called artificial intelligence ten years ago is just called software today. 
And um, I think we should be careful not to overestimate how long the language will live on here, especially this technical language can be very short-lived. That's, of course, a huge problem for people like us who write about this. I agree that the personal computer and then the personal computer you can hold in your hand, i.e. a smartphone, the connectivity of the internet and encryption have all been very important. But I'd be a bit cautious about saying nothing like that's ever going to happen again. We may only be at the beginning of the importance of this. And if, for example, if blockchain turns out to have the ability to change things which its advocates do, that can fundamentally change the way in which we store information and the vulnerability of those storages to outside attack. And people will look back with incredulity at the idea that you could have something on a central computer that could crash and it'd be like thinking the Library of Alexandria burnt and they lost all the books. How could that possibly happen? Encryption has clearly ended the golden age of snooping when most communications are unencrypted. But there's still astonishing capabilities, particularly in government hands, to intercept communications at endpoints and read them. And to some extent, the growth of encryption has meant they've put more effort into this and can now do things that they would never have dreamt of being able to do 10 or 15 years ago. So I I, I sort of suspect that what comes over the horizon may be even more spectacular than what's been um, disappearing behind us. It could be. Very difficult to say. And uh, Mm. I I constantly try to resist the temptation to predict the future because I know that I can't. But uh, whenever a brand new technology comes around and blockchain technology isn't brand new, but as as the cryptocurrency 2.0 technology taking the blockchain, the the engine that powers Bitcoin, that powers uh, cryptographic currencies, and applying it to something else like finance, uh, contracts, Whenever a new technology like this comes around, we tend to go all out in our expectations. The younger the technology, the, the higher and the more ambitious our expectations. The same happened with the personal computer. People imagined you know, cyberspace and virtual reality would change even the way we you know, fall in love and, and have sex. But as soon as you see the blue screen of death and the fact that computers often don't work as advertised, um, I suspect uh, an equivalent we'll, we'll experience with blockchain as well. Arguably, we already have. Is there a fatal curse? Was there a flaw, a poison at the outset that distracted people's minds that they went into the wrong direction? That if you could just go back in time and say, hey, guys, don't think this way, think that way, things would have been better. Cyber, the shorthand of cybernetics today, is a, is a term that still excites a lot of people. It, it stands for the future, and it always stood for the future for the past 70 years. And it al- always stood for something mysterious for people think of a military industrial complex, of spying, of cyber war, but they also think of liberation and technology empowering the weak and even you know, drugs and sex online and whatnot. That, that's a good thing in some ways. There's a huge potential in there because people are getting excited about technology. And that is, you know, that's a positive force for, for, for societies that people want to do coding or want to change the world, make it better. We shouldn't turn into all-out cynics on that. I think, I personally think this is one of the most fascinating subjects. And if we continue, for instance, to discuss it under information security, people will fall asleep, but call it cyber war, and suddenly everybody, you have everybody's attention. Yes, you wrote a very good book called Cyber War Will Not Take Place. So far, it hasn't. <laughs> <laughs> and what about the future? If you could change anything about the way that we're walking in 
to the way that we conceptualize artificial intelligence or big data, how we use maybe tools like the blockchain and ascribe great value to it that's going to remedy war. Certainly, it'll make lots of transactions more easy. Based on your knowledge of the history of cybernetics, how would you caution us to think about technology? The uh, history of predicting how technology will change everything is always one of, of extreme. The pendulum swings quite far into the one direction, the, the first usually the optimistic one, the utopia, and then very quickly into the other direction, the dystopia. And I think if we, if we limit that amplitude, if you like, if we limit how far the pendulum can swing and focus on that middle, the nuance, more quickly, then I think we're doing everybody a good service. Thomas Ridd, Edward Lucas, thank you very much. I'm Kenneth Kukie, and that's it this week for The Economist Asks. You can let us know what you think about cybernetics and our digital future by tweeting us at Economist Radio or send an email to radio at economist.com. One of our robots might reply. Thank you for joining us. Goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.